Hello! Happy Holidays! This is Broken City Podcast number four. Got Adam Watts right here. What's that? My name's Gannon, and uh, Mike Jackson is, uh, what is he doing today? He's out down south somewhere. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. Hopefully he's, he comes back in one piece. He's in the, like, the mountains east of San Diego. Okay. Doing something. So his kidneys are safe? His kidneys are safe. It's, I don't know, it's got to be something important. <laughs> he only does important things. Indeed. So, well, to get started, I had I had one thought in my head. We were talking about songwriting in the car today. And I was I was thinking, what if you went into a session and it was just two people, it's just me and you. Okay. And you're the chord guy and I'm the I'm the melody guy, right? All right. And all of a sudden you played these chords, right? Play play the, the magic chords. Okay. This is we've kind of set this up. Yeah. So the chords are, hmm, I don't know. I made these up myself. Yeah, these are just your own chords. Oh. I can write to that. Don't stop believing. Okay, so for the sake of argument, if I'm the top liner and I'm making melodies and stuff like that, and you come in with that chord progression, which is obviously a chord progression that's been written before. And that's all I do all day. That's all you did all day. Do yeah. you still, I mean, obviously you'll get songwriting credit, but the question is... Because I'm in the room. Is that songwriting? If all I'm doing is that. Yeah, you came in with this chord progression, and you know it's happened a million times. A guy will come in, I mean, to be fair, most people have tracks, and so they'll have tracks designed around that chord progression, but there are sessions that are based around a, a piano and a vocal. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Adele's one good example. The What song was that? The one that she did with Dan Wilson? Uh, someone Like You. Now, that's yeah. a little different because he had an arpeggio. I mean, he mm -hmm. kind of, he changed it up. But yeah. the question, I, it's interesting because I just wonder, like, I know that songwriting, but there's something about it that doesn't feel like songwriting because <laughs> the chord progression yeah. already exists. Well, you could say, okay, here's the argument. Yeah. If I was to argue for myself, the, do, the chord guy. Ignore this. My phone's ringing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> the... I would say, like, well, you know, choosing that chord progression on that day at that tempo right. inspires you to do something like, you know, just the sort of like that's the reality of the moment right, right. type thing. But obviously, there are only so many chord progressions that kind of work. Right. A lot of them are have been used over and over, and I think that's why. Um, so I would say, it's get back to my. It's valid. It's valid, but I think that's why. Like legally, what a copyright is is the melody and right. the lyrics. You can't copyright a chord progression. Right, right. Because so, I mean, the blues is the same thing. If you write a one, if you're the chord guy and you write a blues progression, yeah, and it inspires the vocalist to write their thing. I mean, it's all it's all music, so it all makes sense. But, it's all music, yeah. But, but it does have an element of humor to it, to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you know, especially if you're if you're in a, a fairly narrow genre like pop, yeah, where the chords really there's not as much maybe chord variation as there might be in classical or jazz. Right. So I think that's why the laws are like that. There's like less variation in that particular part, but there's tons of variation in like stylistic choices and like right. production choices. And although production isn't part of the copyright, but but that does change the way. That's why they have to simplify it to like melody, yeah. unique melody, unique lyric, put together. But I think, dude, like the last <laughs> few years, yeah. There have been like lawsuit after lawsuit. Oh, I know. It's crazy. I almost feel like we're running out of 
ideas? Kind of. Or melodies? Or, what was the thing you said Stuart Copeland said? <laughs> yeah, that all the good melodies have been taken yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. But I think it's kind of a, it's a math problem because, you know, yeah. pop music, um, rock and roll, whatever, what's it been around 60, 70 years tops? Right. So when you consider how narrow of a genre it is with like, okay, you have chords, you have, you know, bass, drums, guitar, another guitar maybe, keyboards, vocals, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of like, um, you know, <laughs> rice, beans, tortillas, right. chicken, pork, sauce, <laughs> and yeah, lettuce. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty much like a Mexican meal of like, in terms of its basic ingredients. Yeah. So how many ways can you like rearrange that stuff yeah. and get something new every time? Right, right. You know, obviously there's all kinds of other kind of layers to, <clears throat> to pop music, but if you really did the math, you know, eight notes in the scale, yeah. all, eight different scales, or not eight different scales, but 12 different scales, you start to run out of like new ideas. You have to start yeah. thinking of new like vibes and new sonic characteristics and all this stuff but you think about the millions and millions of songs that have been written over oh, yeah. 70 years it's insane eventually people are going to start repeating. copying each other yeah. repeating it like i think that's why i think goes things go in stages like you get the after about 15 20 years you can bring back the style of 15 20 years ago right. like right now 90s house music is back of all things yeah we just did a thing for um with these guys from london my digital enemy and the music was completely like 90s house yeah which was pretty, it was cool. It was like, okay, I know that style, you know, and you and usually with that kind of music, you have the soulful singer on top. Yeah. It's a good blend between the two styles, you know. I think like the one cool thing about like uh, EDM music too is that I feel like that's the one genre where they're trying to mix up the chords. Right now, yeah, yes. yeah. It seems especially. like that. That's like one area where the chords are getting more sophisticated. Like the melodies are still like I, I feel like melodies are still kind of based in R and B blues and not blues, but they're definitely R and B pop but the chords are tending to get a little bit more sophisticated to some degree not like steely dan or anything but they're not just your straight you know yeah i think people per bar chord you know like one you know producers on that and writers that are trying to like break new ground yeah it's definitely we we hear oh, yeah. whether it's in that key or if it's there's so many songs written by that chord progression. It just feels good, man. It, it says, does. It says like the like, automatic awesome chord triumphant. progression. <laughs> yeah, if we were uh, prepared enough, we could probably sing 50 songs in a row. And I could oh, just yeah. Keep well, Jesse, uh, Jesse's Girl has that chord progression in the verse. Um, Let It Be is that chord progression, isn't it? Or maybe it's not. Yeah, so Let It Be is... I mean, it's like a million songs that have that. And we said the Adele song. Oh, yeah. It's super, I mean, the cool thing is if you're a new songwriter, that's like, it's actually a good place to start. If you're <laughs> yeah. like looking to, for a way to like get going, start with that chord progression because that's... Plagiarize. Well, you know. No, but yeah, start... It's I mean, a bed, you know, and then you have your own, you can come up with your own melodies. Totally. I mean, that's where, you know, if you're going to build a house, poor foundation. Most foundations look kind of the same. That yeah. could be considered a foundation. And then, stucco. <laughs> yeah. That's stucco. That's stucco. But you know, you, you make, dress it up as make them all, you know, switch what they are. Oh, I need you a know. pan flute for that one. <laughs> you do. <laughs> give, it, give it to me. <laughs> Takes me outside the, the mode. Go. Lesson number one don't do that. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> or do. But Try that's, it. you know, that's that's a viable place to start. Yeah. I mean, with or without you two, that's another classic. Yep. It's like, see the stars, you know. But, yeah. you it's know, a good I place to start, though, for sure, for writing songs, you know. I know we've written some without that chord progression. Yeah, more than more than some. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, the thing is, when I brought it up, I just think it's funny because if, if that's all you did, and you got royalties for that, you know, it's like okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> you got a free pass that day. You know, that's true. If but, that, if he gets invited back and he brings the same thing, <laughs> and, and you know, some guy's done that. He goes into a session. Guy, I got this chord progression. It's gonna be brilliant. And oh, then yeah. then everybody feels it because they love that chord progression. Yeah. So. The person that has the hard work ahead of them is the, the singer and the lyricist. Yeah, they're doing the heavy lifting <laughs> on that day. Heavy lifting that day. On so a, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say on a different note, um, I can never remember this guy's name, man, but th we were watching him today. Conor, Mc Conor McGregor. McGregor! Yep, UFC fighter. He just won the featherweight title. And uh, incredible fight. I mean, he, he fought this guy, Jose Aldo, a Brazilian who has been champion... For, I, I believe, four years and undefeated wow. for a decade. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Just an amazing athlete and just, you know, whether he just wins on points and fights smart yeah. or he just pummels people, the guy doesn't lose. Yeah, yeah. I think he's lost one fight, like, really early in his career. But the thing about him is he fights very, um, you know, he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu and mm -hmm. he fights very Muay Thai, which is, like, classic, you know... Thai based boxing kicking right. it's all about leg kicks and knees and yeah which could be brutal if you get kicked in the leg with that <clears throat> totally brutal and he's extremely athletic and fast and <clears throat> you and I always talk I've been talking a lot about and I've been writing a lot about like a holistic approach to the arts mm -hmm. and martial arts is an art you know so um, there's a guy that that came up from Ireland and has just like shot into the public public consciousness and yeah has been amazing. beating everybody. Yeah. Um, and he's super charismatic, but he's actually a great fighter. And his approach to martial arts is probably the most holistic of any guy out there. I right. mean, probably somebody like John Jones is... Um, yeah, I was going to say that guy's like a close, like a... They're kind of in the same zone. He's close, yeah. Except he's, you know, on a on Except a he's doing level. cocaine. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's using a little snoot for that fight. <laughs> Man, John Jones is incredible. He's fast. Yeah, but Connor does not. Hopefully, he's off that path now. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah, but yeah. So Connor um, has really gotten into movement. So he's studying yeah. like he's noticed that a lot of fighters move in very kind of ways that you can predict. And, right. and he's decided to, you know, he has a movement coach, and he's always been obsessed with movement. And his approach is about you know those who move well. They're not just controlling their body. They're they're really. In control of their mind, right, right, and he's very much about mental warfare, right. You know, to fight a lot like Muhammad Ali, right. Yeah, they they kind of beat you mentally be, be, before they beat you physically, yeah, some way, which is cool. But that was amazing when when you the fight. How long did you say it was? Thirteen seconds. Thirteen seconds. And it was looked so funny because we were just kind of like going like this, and then that guy came in. I guess he hit him with the left hook. I couldn't really tell what punch it was left hook. I think. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing is the thing you showed me earlier before that. After the fight, you showed me this clip of him predicting how he's going to win and how he visualized it. Yeah, at the press conference afterwards, he was um, he's talking about somebody asked him like, "Hey, you know, do you know what you said to me a week ago?" Yeah. One of the, one of the uh, guys at the press conference, 
And Connor remembered and told him what he was going to do, and the guy quoted him and basically said that Connor had been had faced off with him, as they do before these fights, if you're not familiar with the UFC. They, as they're promoting the fight, they do, like, multiple face-offs. You know, where they're yeah, just yeah. getting their faces, yeah, and, yeah. Like, and they're staring each other down. and Promoting. Get everybody promoting. fired up. Yep. And there's something about that moment, man, where you know you're going to fight that person, and yeah. you're most likely going to get hurt, mm-hmm. and there's a 50-50 chance, you know, t- technically speaking, that yeah. you could lose. Yeah. So it's an intense moment for these guys. And um, he said, Connor said he could see his right hand Jose Aldo's right hand twitching. Yeah. And that he had gotten into his head and he was kind of mentally he's not he the knew Jose it. Aldo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I think he's gonna load up on that right hand and be over emotional and whatever. Yeah. And he had it planned out that he was gonna slip the punch and counter with his left. Right. And uh, this reporter said that you told me exactly what you're gonna do and that's exactly what happened and it happened in thirteen <laughs> seconds. That's amazing. And he knocked out Josie Aldo. He's yeah. like I don't think he's ever been knocked out before and it was just like it was so amazing to see, you know what was crazy for me in watching Conor McGregor say that was like he's done it multiple times. Yeah. Like he's he's called his shot and mm-hmm. he's been right a lot. You know, I'd say most of the time he'll say right. like I'm going to beat this guy in the first round or the second round, and mm-hmm. he goes and he does it, and he says how he's going to do it. Right. And they'll go and just show a voiceover of him doing that yeah. and something he had said before the fight. So um, he calls it like his fight IQ, that he sees something in his head, mm-hmm. and it's very technical-based, and it's like he knows what he can do, and he, he's seeing these patterns, pattern recognition in these fighters, mm-hmm. and he knows how to counter them. Yeah. And it was... So he sees the holes in their game, basically. He sees the holes in their game, yeah. and he see and he can kind of predict, you know, he can prepare mentally and physically for what yeah. is likely to happen. And he said, if you can believe it, if you see it and you believe it and you speak it, this is what he said at the pro, uh, press conference. Yeah. Then it will happen. Right. It becomes reality, and that sounds like mumbo jumbo and like universe talk, like, you know the secret or something like the, the he even mentioned the law of attraction yeah but really like that re- inspired me that day to think about like what what is vision you know like that's mm-hmm. what he's got he's got he's got vision right vision isn't crystal ball and vision isn't like seeing into the future right but vision is like an intelligence about what you're doing confidence that you see what you see and then you know in his case he says speaking it is important but taking action, you know, like making, if you're seeing something in the world and you're not crazy, it's it's not crazy to have the confidence to kind of follow that gut instinct. It's really, a, it's instinct mixed with, with technique and cognitive right. kind of awareness. But I think the confidence thing is really what helps too, like knowing that you're going to achieve your goal no matter what, seeing it in front of you. I mean, I remember reading interviews with Steve Vai talking about that, how he would dream about himself being on stage. He would picture himself doing all the things that he's doing now. Wow. Like he saw it, all you know, he saw everything about it. And wow. then he would try to make that happen in real life. So I think there's definitely something to it. I mean, guys that Muhammad Ali had a very similar kind of strategy where he would kind of manifest that he was going to win and he was the greatest and all that stuff that he would put out there. And then with all that confidence, he was able to kind of achieve that. Yeah. So there's true. definitely it's like a, it's like a, a common thread amongst really amazing athletes and musicians or whatever artists in general. Mm-hmm. Visualization. And I think the it seems like in what I've 
and what I've seen it in and maybe my own experience with it to some degree is like the guys that do that and are the best and um, they seem to have no dips in that confidence. Right. Like we all have confidence and then and then that confidence completely. So they get shattered along goes, the way. Yeah, yeah it yeah. goes totally away and it comes yeah. back and I think there's something to be said for like the con- you know, like practicing the consistency of right. that visualization because there's not, you know, whenever you drop that that vision or whatever it, it's filled in with doubt and then second guessing sure, yeah. and like there's all that stuff going on so yeah you get attacked you, yeah, in some yeah. sort of way like something you yeah. get there's a roadblock along that way you know and all those guys probably felt that too before they got to that place they probably had their 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 moments of doubt and stuff but they probably right. they probably were just thinking their way out of it you know or figuring a way out of it and not really vocalizing it yeah trying to find a way to yeah. like head it off before it exactly before it one takes thought over. becomes another yeah 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 but I love that line of thinking. I mean, that's I, I, it kind of inspired me like it did you, where it's like I want next year to be sort of like whatever roadblocks I have in my brain about whatever we're trying to achieve or whatever I'm trying to achieve, it's like I want that to be removed by doubt. You know, doubt's the, the worst thing. Right. If you could, once you have doubt in the equation, then everything else sort of gets crazy. Yeah. But if you can just get past the doubt and just say, okay, this is what I'm doing, no matter what comes my way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. Yeah, man. It's very, um, it's a poignant topic because, you know, I, I was watching, this is a, it's going to sound like a, a big left turn, but it's really not. Like, there's this guy named Royal Rife. I like that name. <laughs> it's a pretty good name, Royal. Yeah. So he, um, he invented what I think it's called the, the Rife machine in mm-hmm. the 1920s. Sounds he was like a, I've heard that name for for some reason. Yeah, you probably have seen it. Or it's in holistic medicine. Yeah, yeah. So basically, what he did, he's like an extreme genius, like in um, you know mechanics and biology, and like mm. he was an inventor, and he invented a microscope that was insanely powerful for the time. You know, like nowadays, you can go buy a micro microscope online or something and spend a good deal of money and get maybe like. 5,000 times magnification or 10,000, maybe 15, but you're spending serious thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. And back then the magnification was like a couple hundred times or something. Mm-hmm. He built this wacky machine that was just like, it's probably like this big by this big, but it was mm-hmm. all these different lenses and different angles and the thing could magnify it 50 times, oh, 50,000 okay. times. Sorry. And for that time period, that was insane. And so it's insane for now. Yeah. Because he could see... Well, I knew that. You knew that. <laughs> of course. Of course. What was I? Th- I was just kidding. Your machine was a thousand <laughs> million times. So the thing about it is that he could see living bacteria, living viruses, oh, wow. things that now it's difficult to, to keep them alive and look at them, like with electron microscopes and stuff. So yeah. he, um, this Rife machine that he invented mm-hmm. was a product of him realizing that when looking through this microscope that he made, if he shines different colors of light through what he was looking at um, on a black background, that he could, it would light up these bacteria or molecules, organisms that um, that were that same color, mm-hmm. and he could see them incredibly clearly. Like I think a lot of the problem is you look down at that depth, 50,000, and everything's clear and you can't see it, so scientists have to use different colored dyes in order right. to see things. So he was able to use light in order to see what, what he on? wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. 
So when he thought about light, he's like, oh, frequencies of light. What about frequencies of sound? Mm -hmm. So he started dealing with different frequencies of sound and how it affected different um, cells. So he realized, he made this machine that had, I think, like 2,000 different frequencies that he could tune in, and he would find the vibrating frequency of a virus, and when he matched the virus frequency, mm -hmm. the thing would explode. Oh, wow. So he could not kill the surrounding tissue and just kill viruses with a frequency. Well, that's pretty insane. It's insane. That's incredible. And what happened with that was people try the pharmaceutical industry tried they didn't to like that one no nope. <laughs> apparently the yeah. story goes is that he was curing cancer in the 1920s with this machine wow like there he had some studies and like you know you know a series of this many people with cancer and mm -hmm. he used the machine on them and i think 80 percent of them are around there their cancer was cured during the period it was a couple weeks wow and then actually they stayed on the machine and within a few more weeks the other 20 percent so a hundred percent cancer cure whoa with this machine can you imagine insane man so like yeah. there's holistic doctors out there that have these machines you can mm -hmm. google it online rife a wow. rife machine and they're out there but there's there's a lot of quackery you know yeah. there's a lot of machines like yeah it makes frequencies <laughs> yeah and then you get the you know that's pretty cool people though i think they're getting better but they're not but right um it's an amazing thing to like. I don't. Where, where did I start that conversation? <laughs> well, I thought it was going to be about the adversity of Rife having to go through something that that made him. No, I think it was just about like inven invention and sort of like thinking outside the box, kind of thinking. Yeah, vision. Yeah, yeah, visionary thinking. Yeah, visionary thinking. You know, and like seeing what you see and going after it right. and doing, you know, what you're meant to do in life. Because, you know, that's kind of what Connor was talking about. It's like. He wasn't like looking at, you know, what somebody, what other, what other fighters did or mm -hmm. whatever. He was kind of following an instinctual. Yeah, even his like path. preparation, like the way he trains is different. Like where he does all that weird like movement, and stands on one hand, and you know what's weird about that is he he fell into it from. Um, he hurt his knee really bad and he couldn't train, so mm -hmm. he decided like he couldn't do heavy training, so he decided that he was gonna just work on movement. Real low impact, no sparring and oh, stuff. that's how it started. Yeah, and he realized that, like, whoa, everybody in the sport is just sparring and moving, like, you know, in these very distinct styles. Yeah. For the most part, there are a few guys that are different. Oh. Um, Don't worry about <laughs> that, folks. Shh. So there, there are a few guys that are different, but um, for the most part, you know, like, Dominic Cruz and John Jones, these guys move in unusual ways, but... That's like the future of the sport. Right. The innovation is to that, think outside right. pre-existing styles and just kind of blend them all together. And it probably helps your body, too. There's probably a lot of wear and tear in your body in those sparring sessions, too. It's funny you say that, because what he was talking about is, like, the week before the fight, a lot of guys were hitting pads really hard yeah. and, like, getting ready. And he's like, all I did was movement, just very snaky, you know, interesting movement. And he's like, I woke up on the day of the fight, and my brain wasn't going to my elbow. Yeah, he my felt elbow good. Hurts. Like, Those guys, don't a lot of fighters have like a lot of pain before they actually fight? A lot of guys go in. They go in there hurt. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy, man. But the big thing about this too, I think, is like, there are these disciplines that that grow to be, you know, famous. There's like boxing, and there's karate, and there's jujitsu, and there's. And each of these things are worlds that guys have perfected these certain, the certain group of, of techniques and approaches and stuff. 
and mixed martial arts is kind of bringing them together. Um, but the space between all those things is kind of like, you know, the space between, you know, writing lyrics, writing chords and mm -hmm. writing melodies as songwriters are supposed to bring all those things together. Yeah. And those might as well be, you know, jujitsu, karate and boxing. Sure. But how do you, what the space in between those different worlds is, is like almost infinite. There's like, yeah. and th that's something that, that Conor McGregor's ah. movement coach, um, Ido Portal is his name, I think. Um, he has this holistic approach to movement, and it really, you know, kind of mirrors what what I've been thinking about a lot lately. Is just how do you blur all those lines and really take in the entire human being and think think about ways to to let the music inform the lyrics and let the lyrics inform the music and let the the lyrics and the music inform the track and mm. and really look at it from these different angles of like psychology and spirituality sure, yeah. and don't let your technique get in the way of what you're doing let it be a service to what you're doing um so i just love that approach man and yeah. it's we're seeing it's like, fascinating for sure yeah it applies to sports and it applies to to art much anything. anything yeah yeah anything. Could, you could actually apply if you were working at a, as an accountant probably maybe not <laughs> a little more finite. i got these numbers here man <laughs> we have questions huh we do have questions that's pretty amazing in itself we actually mm -hmm. have questions. Okay, so what are these questions? I'm excited to see. Yeah, we're um, early on in the podcast journey, so we have a handful of listeners. So my dad, he wrote most of these, right? <laughs> yeah, Cannon. <laughs> Love you, Dad. I can't wait to hear the first one. When are you going to get it together? <laughs> Come visit When me. am I going to get my 50 bucks back? Yeah. What do we got? What do we got? All right. What do we got? How much time we got here? Run low, because we're using these high-tech cameras, so they're on limited time. That's true. Okay, so we're going to actually... We're gonna pause right now, and you're gonna see just, it's not gonna be a long pause for you, but for us it will be. And we're gonna come back, and we're gonna answer questions. Okay, so what's the first question? So the first question is from Keith Moore via- Hi Keith. Hi Keith, what's up man? Um, this was on Facebook. Okay. And he actually, has a great question. What makes a good song a good song? Well, that's, com oh, that's complicated. It is. <laughs> you go first, then I'll go. Wow. What makes a good song a good song? Well, there's a lot of different variables, you know. It's like, it has to move you in some way, you know. And it's really hard because it depends on the listener. Some people are really driven by melody. Some people are really driven by words. And some people are driven by the whole the whole song, you know. Yeah, true. Like for me, if I hear a song, I mean, words to me tend to be the secondary thing because I'm really like, I love melody and I love chords. So for me, if I hear something that moves me in a, in a, in a way melodically and then the chords, and if it happens to have a great message, and it's like, awesome. Right. But and sometimes it could just be, if it's just that and the, and, the, and the lyrics are good, I can actually live with that. Yeah. You know, but it has to have some sort of emotional impact. It has to give you the goosebumps on some level. If it's, on one of those criteria, you know, it's like, or the whole thing is preferred, you know, where you can hit all, all those, yeah. those things, you know. And if you love music, songwriting is weird because lyrics and the idea of, of words coming together, it's kind of a different part of the brain that thinks about, right. you know, words and, and it's a, it's a different thing, like where music reaches you is in a, this kind of more primal place. I think it's more kind of in the primal parts yeah. of the brain and. So, it's it's interesting to me because I know you're very deep into music. You've done a lot of you studied jazz really deeply. Mm -hmm. 
so music is kind of a big number one. Sure. And yeah. um, it also just depends on the person, you know, like for yeah. other personal, like non-musical reasons, I think, why you listen to music. Um, yeah, so what would you what would you say makes a good song a good song? Like, It has to give you that feeling. Like when you hear it, it has to give you that, it was, it, you know, it has to make you feel elated or depressed. Whatever the song is trying to convey, it has to make the listener feel that. And if it does, then you're successful. Mm. You know, like if you're trying to, if the song is sad and you're trying to portray this really sad melody in this, this uh, story, then it really has to hit you deeply in that way. If it's really cool dance track and it's got this vibe, yeah. on all levels it just has to be great. Yeah. And, if, and you always know when you hear the ones that aren't great. It's like there's something missing. You'll hear it and you'll go, it's cool, but it's not great. When you hear a great one, even if you don't even like that style of music, you'll mm -hmm. respond to it. Yeah. So that's damn good. I think there was like a senator or something that was talking about pornography, and he said like <laughs> his def he was like they're trying to define it, and he yeah. was like, "All I know is I know it when I see it." <laughs> yeah, and they're trying to like put the pinpoint line, what it is. Where's that line where it's yeah. like what is considered pornographic? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, a, a good song, you know it when you hear it. Yeah. But that's it's super subjective. It is. There's no like right or wrong way to look at it, and everybody has different tastes. Yeah, when I think about that question, um, I go, I kind of go to okay. I instantly know what, what that know it. I know it when I hear it, kind of thing for myself. But mm -hmm. I also know intrinsically how there's a big part of that that's subjective, and then sure. there are things that are objective. But for me, I think like okay, what's the definition of a song, and what's the definition of good? Right. Because really, that's what it comes down to. Like, yeah. um, not to get too like scientific with just answering a question, but you know, a song, a song is an interesting thing. It's a, it's like a paradigm that we have that's probably started in folk music and um, years ago. So, you know, a song tends to be a verse and a chorus, and a, you know, like yeah. there's a hymn, a there's song. A structure. There's some kind of structure yeah. that you have to like adhere to. And the less you adhere to it, maybe the less good it seems to be. Right. And the more you adhere to it, the more, okay, that's a song. And right. then you become, okay, so what's good in the context of the structure of a song? Where you have, you know, a verse, you have lyrics, you have melody. I mean, obviously, you don't need lyrics or vocals to have a song. No. They're instrumental, instrumental songs. Yeah. And there's instrumental songs that are an hour long. Yes, there are. <laughs> I've never heard one. Well, classical pieces can, can run on to about half an hour, possibly an hour, most likely a half an hour. Yeah? They can go for a long time. And then I don't think anybody calls those songs, so it's kind of like... Com well, the compositions. But... Yeah, so I think there's a length to a yeah. song. Three minutes probably is the... I think you hit on something really good, though, because I think a good song is a song that I think has to... There seems to be some sort of, like quality level that you have to get to in order to like recognize it as a song right you know because like blah, 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 you know is that a song or do i have to start playing chords or there's an abstractness that you need to sort of maybe rise above and go okay this is a song yeah but i think the the intent of the songwriter is really important like you said like am i is the aim of the, of the person writing this song to express this certain feeling, and does that actually come 
out of the song and then create that feeling in me. Yeah. That's the most basic way to say, like, that's a good song. Right. Because I think... Because you feel something from it. You feel something from it. There's this... Um, something that I've, I've been writing about a little bit, but it's called... In psychology, it's called, like, transference and countertransference, which is, like, what happens between, you know, a therapist and counseling and their client and the way, you know, subconscious, very subtle, not necessarily subconscious, but feelings kind of move back and forth between people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if you're mad, um, this has something to do with transference, but if you're mad, I pick up on that and I have some sort of reaction. Right. And then I start acting a certain way and then you pick up on the way I'm acting and it either makes you more mad or less mad or right. it's this thing, that, it's just this tennis match. Sure, yeah. So I think, you know, as human beings, we can affect each other in that way. It's almost like you catch the disease of emotion. You either catch that same emotion and you start feeling it with them or you, you start to feel this sort of reactionary emotion. Mm -hmm. Like you get mad, I get scared. Or you get mad, I get mad. Right. And what does my mad do to your mad what, right. if, what if I get more mad than you does yeah, that yeah. make you scared yeah or like do you calm down so I think the same thing happens in the arts yeah. which is sort of a weird thing to think about but if I you know feel a certain way and I emote into the music in that feeling there's a transference happening from my artistic and emotional and psychological self that I'm trying to get transmitted into this composition like right. in, in the performance and the writing like every part of it which is why like I always loved I've always loved making my own music from start to finish and I always felt like you handing it off to somebody else felt very unnatural to me because I felt like that transference project process I didn't wasn't calling it that back in the day but that idea that I'm transferring emotion mm -hmm. and I'm picking these chords and going, yeah, that's the emotion. Like, right. Hey, those <laughs> chords again. Hey, man, if that's what you're feeling. Yeah. In a way, coming back to that chord progression, I think a lot of people feel what that fe feels like. Yeah. And it I think that's why it resonates. Yeah. So, like, there's something about this. something about that that's sad there's something about that that's happy yeah, it has all the emotions wrapped up in one chord progression it kind of does yeah and it's got gospel in it too it does which yeah. is weird it's like the weirdest chord progression that con that has so many different moods in it and it takes you there fast <clears throat> you know which yeah. is pop music has to get places fast and um but so if if you can get that into the chords and you can get that into the melody and all these different layers and then you can get it into the performances and the sound of the track and all that stuff you're successful in trans transferring your emotion to this thing yeah. and now your emotion is like it's almost like trying to catch something in a in a jar you know like right. you now have that in a jar and you can send it off on the internet and right. when somebody else hears it if mm -hmm. you've put it in there the people that want to feel that or the people that are feeling that are attracted to it right and then you have that transference it's like it's like you're in the room with them but you're not it's yeah like, they that, feel it. Yeah, you've encapsulated yourself in this other thing that's not you, mm -hmm. and then it can go and affect somebody. It's weird. Yeah, it's like it's, a. It's really cool. I mean, that's what makes music amazing. It's magical. That, yeah. Yeah. Any kind of art. I mean, any kind of art that can be documented and recorded in that way can sort of be sent off like a. 
Yeah. Like a vitamin. Yeah. I don't know the word. Or, or, it can heal or it can make somebody upset or it can do all kinds of things. Yeah, it's powerful. It make people happy. So what's our next question? Yes, I guess it's subjective, but a good song <laughs> is a song that's that's authentic. Yeah, it it's moves true. you. true. It has it to moves move you. And also has some level of like, you can get it as a song. Right. Has to be great. It becomes harder to get and experience a song as good if you have to wade through a bunch of crap. I think right. a great song sung really poorly is hard. Is harder to hear as great because there are things in the way. Yeah, performance is true. In the way. Crummy recording can make it fuzzy and yeah, it's true. I mean, in this day and age, everything has to be great, and you have the technology to do it. Yep, you can buy Logic for two hundred dollars, man. So you now have what everybody else has for two hundred dollars. Which means you got to be careful because everybody's <laughs> using the same tools. Well, I don't think it's even that. I think it just you just have to be creative. You, do. you have to be creative to the point where it's like, no matter what you're putting out there, it has to be on that level of everything else that's out there, but above that even, so people can, you know, so people get it. Yeah. So it's not, it doesn't sound derivative. People don't have room for derivative anymore. Yeah, but even some if something, I agree with you, but like say this chord progression, you know, it's derivative, but truth, I think, transcends derivative. Yeah, it's, it's true. And Adele, like, even Adele, to some degree, is a derivative. It's paper, rock, scissors. Yeah. It's like... Paper is truth, and, right. and you know it's like yeah. if you have truth and you're authentic in what you're saying, but there's something a little bit derivative. As long as, as long as you're not ripping it off, right? It's viable. Yeah, I think truth Absolutely. is sort of what we all want. We want yeah. that connection. But good great, question, though, dude. Great question, Keith. And thanks for listening um, or watching. So the next one we have is let's see, Corey Clark. I know him via Facebook, Corey. My guy, up, dude. It's my guy. So, I use uh, ten gauge strings. Yeah, is that what you want to know? Yeah. Question over. <laughs> Corey's a great guitar player. He is great singer, songwriter, guitar player, multi guy. Yeah. Um. So he has three questions. Okay. Because he's Corey. <laughs> First one is favorite most memorable gig you've ever played. Well, that's. Kind of easy for me. Really? Yeah, because I played uh, I played the Beacon Theater with Joe Walsh. Mm. That was pretty awesome. When was that? That was recently, and then I also did it um, a long time ago too, like five or six years ago. Wow! But the recent one was pretty awesome. Cause I thought you were gonna say the gig where we met. <laughs> no, <laughs> Joe Walsh wins. You might win on that one. So, for those of you who don't know, Joe Walsh is in the Eagles. Uh, still is in the Eagles, I yeah. guess, right? As far as I know. Um, tell him, like, just a little bit about... Well, real brief, I've, I've been playing guitar with Joe Walsh for about seven years now, on and off. Like, whenever he goes on the road, he usually takes me with him. And it's been fun. I mean, I grew up on his music, you know, I was like a big classic rock fan, so... You know, I heard Life's Been Good, Rocky Mountain Way, all those songs as a kid. So it's like, it's like playing... It's funny, because, like, the soundtrack of my growing up, now I'm playing with the person that provided the soundtrack to me growing up. It's got to be trippy. It's trippy. And he's a killer guitar player, so it's like, he's all those things. It's a weird gig, actually, now that I think about it. It, it does a lot of things that it's I don't... Surreal. I usually don't think about it, because I'm on duty. Yeah. You know, i got to provide a service and make sure that he's happy. Right. But if you take away that aspect of it... I do remember one time I was playing bass with him first. And that, <laughs> was, that was awful. He didn't like that at all. But I remember when I played bass with him, he... Um, I remember being on stage and thinking, oh my God, there's Joe Walsh. I'm playing with Joe Walsh. And I stopped playing bass. You did? And Drew goes, dude, keep playing bass. And I was like, oh yeah, I got to keep playing because I'm bass, you can't stop. 
he just became an audience member. I was just like, that's stage. Joe Walsh. I'm sitting next to him, you know. And then wow. I'm like, oh crap, my hands just stopped moving. They st- I literally stopped playing, and I like, I was in the moment. I was at this club in Texas. Dude, tell okay. So what the story about you playing bass and you just decided you were gonna play one thing over and over? Was oh, this yeah. in rehearsal? <laughs> well, he does. He hates vamps. Like if you, he, I mean, he likes vamps, but he likes them to do something. So it's like I was. We were playing this groove, and he, that. Those rehearsals are pretty gnarly because he he had caught on real early that I'm a guitar player and playing bass and he didn't really like that. So. <laughs> I mean he was cool, but you could definitely tell he was you know a little bugged by the whole thing. Yeah. So I was playing. They were playing this song called Turn of Stone and there's a section where we play an E minor for a long time. And I kept playing this ostinato part that was just over and over again. And he looks over and he goes, "Play something different." <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and it felt really weird to be yelled at like that. <laughs> My hero. <laughs> My hero. And I played something different. I bet you did. I don't think he liked it any better, but I think I played something different. Wow. But we've come a long way since that little episode. Yeah. Was there a moment at the Beacon Theater that you kind of, that stands out, or just the idea that you did? Well, I just saw Bob Dylan there, so I was kind of like, and I realized uh, that the history of that place is pretty deep. Yeah. There's been a lot of great bands and stuff come through there, so I think... Just for me, the historical aspect of it, being in New York, playing with my one of my heroes, and then playing at the you know, a great venue. Wow. I think all that kind of together. I'm trying to think of another gig. Uh, there was two gigs that I remember. The other one that was really special was when I played with Taylor Hawkins in Europe. And on the side of us was um, Josh Homie, John Paul Jones, and Dave Grohl watching our whole show. Oh, wow. And I thought that was pretty cool. And at the end of the gig, we were, we all got in the van to go back to the dressing rooms. And like, John Paul Jones was like, great gig, man, that's awesome, you know? Like, and he was blown away. And then Josh Homie's like, dude, it was incredible, you know. So I was like, "There's a moment of like." Are both English? No, he's. <laughs> did I speak in an English accent with him? There's a little still yeah, there from yeah. the John. Paul no, he was. He's American, but those two gigs are the ones that stand out. That's awesome. Yeah, I would say for my my gigs, there's a few that have been fluttering through my mind as you're mm-hmm. talking. But like, um, there was a time at, gosh, what what year was this? Had to have been like 2000 four or five or something mm-hmm. and I was singing my song which I think was a song called Forgiven Now mm-hmm. off my first record The Noise Inside and I was playing at Saddleback Church and it was on I think a Sunday night service and there were probably like you know around a thousand people in there mm-hmm. and I'm in the middle of playing my song and it's just like it's a very soft like mm-hmm. just solo acoustic guitar and it was one of my favorite songs to sing at the time because it was just you know all about forgiveness and just like a, that moment of being in such a huge place like mm-hmm. the the worship center there is just massive, yeah, massive. like 15,000 like, seat arena <laughs> <laughs> it's 3,000 but it feels huge <laughs> that was way off in numbers you could fit them if you but it feels like if you stack them yeah but um right in the beginning of the song the entire power went out oh wow on the whole building yeah so you can imagine, like, 6 o'clock, worship center. That's crazy. And I was standing up there, like a fool, mm-hmm. like, all right. And so I was like, you know what? The show must go on. Yeah. I must have thought that. I don't yeah. remember thinking that. <laughs> Instinctively, you knew that. So it was sort of this weird feeling, and I just went, like, all right. And I just yelled out at everybody, hey, everybody come up, like, get as close as you can. And I sat on the edge of the stage, and and sang the song for everybody and it was this really cool just kind of intimate moment with like 
you know, a thousand That's people. That's really cool. Yeah. And just, all right, we're going to do this old school, man. Yeah. Caveman style. Yeah, yeah. They probably loved it. It was really great, man. Yeah. It was just like a cool moment, like of just, I don't know, you could, you could act like it was some something that God did, mm -hmm. but... Maybe so. Whoever did it, it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was. <laughs> Might it was have been special. Paul behind the breakers and just went, I hate this guy. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, maybe I did. Yeah, he had it out for you. I'm turning him off. <laughs> this song sucks. <laughs> I know what makes a good song, and that's not it. He didn't keep me down, though. No, he didn't. No. Nope. He showed him. No, that's yeah, pretty man. awesome, though, on a, on a serious note. All right, so what's uh, Corey's second question? Corey's second question was, is, what is more inspiring to you, writing, happiness, oh, to your writing? <laughs> it's going to be, that's a weird question. It is. <laughs> writing and happiness, I don't what know. Do you like they kind of go together sometimes, but Death, maybe not. rabbits, or ice cream? Uh, what is more inspiring to your writing, happiness or depression? I think depression tends to lead to... Um, more fruitful songs, I think, to some degree. Happiness tends to not really bring songs out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you're, unless your song yeah. is really kind of like a dance like song or like, a, like supposed to be kind of funny and quirky, I think that could be cool. But I think anything that has like sort of a melancholy to it has seems to bear more songs. Mm. Yeah, my my thinking on that is. Um I think if, if anybody is, knows my music, I would probably say depression with with some hope that it's not going to last forever, um, and not and not just like I'm depressed and I don't know why, but just sort of you know something, some kind of feeling that's that stopped me in my tracks that I need to deal with, and I think that's the big difference between those two emotions, whether you call it happiness and sadness or joy and depression those two kind of polar opposites is that like happiness i think it's it's very self-propelling like when yeah. you're happy you're you you're out being happy and doing the things that that happiness sort of um, creates so like right when you're happy inside i think you you tend to celebrate that happiness and live life and i think it depends on the kind of artist you are, but I yeah. think that's why there's. It's very hard to have a happy song that's also, that also feels very like. I don't know, like it's got depth or value, you know, mm -hmm. for some reason. I don't, and I could be wrong, but it just really seems like. Unless the song's sad, called Happy, <laughs> like Pharrell or something. Yeah, I mean they're, <laughs> they're out there, but they're rare yeah. and they're special, and they tend to actually be more in. Um, R&B and they, yeah. they tend towards certain styles too like Stevie Wonder like isn't she lovely right. and like they tend to be super joyful like love songs but I, I would say that like a lot of the greatest songs in history have a melancholy to them that's sort of like on the way up you know it's like this this ache yeah there's like a it leads to a hopefulness kind of feeling yeah so I think yeah. songwriters especially since since songwriters are the ones writing songs I think when a songwriter is happy, he's less likely to write a song than he is to go out and do something, do fun. a gig, or yeah. finally spend some time with his wife. Or, yeah, totally. You know, I think depression, rather than being self-propelling, propression, propression, propression. It's a good new. It's word. a new uh, medication. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Not> a profession. <laughs> 
depression is sort of stops you in your tracks and it's a very like it takes you backwards and makes you stop and consider and reflect because you want to get out of it right so i think you, you want to find a re a way to like dig yourself out hey clemmer showed up studio dog it's clem time um like she's happy and i haven't heard one song that she's written no mostly mostly she just does stuff she eats sticks yeah so i guess if i was happier i'd eat <laughs> sticks so yeah, I, th I would say depression fuels it, but I would call it for myself more like, you know, spiritually and psychologically psychologically driven melancholy. Right. That, and songs and art help get me out of that. Yeah. And I think it's there's nothing cathartic. better. It's cathartic, yeah. And there's nothing better for me than when if somebody hears a song that that I've been involved in. And they're not thinking about me; they're thinking about them, and it's it's sort of like meeting them where they're at. That to me is the best. Like, it's not about me. I've already had my my time with that music, and it helped. Right. It's helped me. Um, and that's my favorite songs are the ones that I feel like, wow, that was written for me or people like me. Like, I just feel like it's my moment with that art. Right. So, his uh, anyway, moving on to his next question. Thoughts on Scott Weiland? Sad. Kind of, unfortunately, the way he was living his life kind of led to that. You know? This is inappropriate. But I also think that... Um, She's going crazy. I think Let that, go. I think that he was obviously a troubled person, you know? And he didn't have the right people around him. If he had the right kind of help, or maybe he didn't. He just... Some people are just like, like Jaco Pastore, same thing. It's like, if you have a condition like that, sometimes you just can't get out of it, you know? Yeah, man. It, being a victim of yourself, like, you could, you can sit there and say, like, hey, stop doing drugs, but addiction's real, and it's, you know, there's a certain amount of choice involved, for sure, but to, yeah. to dig yourself out of that, it's just, it's, it's the monkey on your back, you know, and you're, you're always trying to, you know, keep that thing away, and when it comes back, and I don't know if he was in... I don't know much about, you know, his death, and I don't know what's been released in terms of facts about it. So I don't, I don't know if he was clean and he took a couple sleeping pills to sleep, and if his heart gave out or what the deal is. Mm -hmm. um, so forgive my ignorance on it, but I, I think it's sad that artists, in their fragility, you know, get famous, and I think fame does not really help with. You know, having a normal life and, and, and you know, you tend to have yes men around you and you tend to be able to isolate and, and, and do, continue to do these things. And it's like, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Cool, I'm doing one of those. Like, yeah. who knows if, there's, if that element played a role in it, get, you know, in him getting to that point early on in his career where the addiction got his hooks in because it was sort of just like yeah he's doing drugs whatever everybody's doing drugs you know like yeah. in other circumstances maybe maybe his addiction wouldn't have gotten that far right i don't know you, you, you don't know all i know is that i like a lot of the songs that he's written yeah, and it's sad to see him go and i don't know if he was beyond help or what but man it is just sad it's sad to see another artist another one down and then Corey says, okay, sorry, I'll stop now. Love you guys. Love you, <laughs> Love you dude. So two quick more, uh, more quick questions. Quick more. Scott Radmaker 
Hey, This Scott. came via Facebook. What's up, Scott? Um, it's been forever, actually. Thanks for listening, um, both of you guys. And his question is, why do musicians tend to forget some of the best tunes they ever wrote? Dot, dot, dot. Directed at Gannon Arnold <laughs> equals heavy mental. Heavy mental? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had written a song called Heavy Mental. He liked that one. And I can never remember it. <laughs> I don't know how to play it. I had no idea. That was like more of the fusion. I know how to play it. Heavy Mental, Heavy Mental. That's not it. Should have been it, though. Probably would have been a hit. I think musicians forget their favorite songs just by brain farts. I don't know. I think that question really is more of just a personal attack than an actual question. <laughs> I like it. I'll take it. So I want to hear that. I never even heard it. So. I'd ask Evan. Maybe Evan knows about it. Too. I'm with you, Scott, and I'm sorry for the rest of you who don't care about this question, <laughs> who have to suffer through it. Um, but Scott, if you have a recording of it, dude, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, because I totally forgot it. Send it over. <laughs> Heavy Mental, though. That's a good title. Yeah, it was good. Instrumental song. Yeah. Okay. So our last question, because um, we're running out of time here, but we're going to get to the rest of the questions. There's like five more questions, and they're really good ones. Um, when Mike's back, too, because a couple of them are for Mike. Okay, good. Um, we'll get to those questions. So uh, sorry we didn't get to him this time. This one comes from Trevin Irie. Ah, Trevin, what's up, dude? <laughs> I know Trevin, too. The old days, man. Yeah, yeah. So this, I have the worst memory on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure anything has ever happened to me. Um, but except for those two gigs that I remembered but his question is do you want to trade double bass drum pedals <laughs> well JK so I think there might have been a time I have a vague memory of being do you there. have one of his double bass pedals I don't think I have it I think <laughs> I had a memory of going to his house yeah and he had I don't know just gotten a double bass pedal or had one or so something happened and I kind of felt like I want that and maybe mm -hmm. he'd want mine, I hope, because I want his. <laughs> something, yeah. somewhere, something got exchanged, and they want to, now he wants there it back. There was something strange <laughs> that maybe he saw as like a slightly shady request on my yeah. part. Like, yeah, you don't need that. Yeah. You don't need those pedals. Those That's are no that. good. Well, Trevin, I don't hooked remember. Me, Trevin hooked me up with uh, Rush videos. He had all oh. these like these cool Rush videos from like Canada, and he had taped them all on VHS. So there was like a, it was like. A bunch of different segments about Rush, and, okay. and so that's how I know Trevin. And so I had a lot. Of, I had a lot of great Rush videos from him. Wow! So that was cool. Dude, that's awesome. dude. So well, uh, Trevin, uh, the answer is maybe. <laughs> you got to so, call him. <laughs> we're gonna actually. We're gonna play you out. This is a. This is an unplanned. How we tune? Close enough. No, we're. Attitude. This is going to happen. Here we go. Choose your adventure. Really? We're doing that? <laughs> Bringing it all full circle. Okay, why, oh. don't, okay, why don't you... Okay, here's an idea. I'm going to play that progression. A different key? Give me an A. Wow, this is taking too long. We'll cut this. <laughs> okay, we're back. We, we tuned. Took, took three hours. Um, I'm going to play this here bass and why don't you take us through playing like diatonically as a soloist and then play take us out of the box oh you want me solo yeah I do <laughs> yeah so kind of like if that. somebody gives you this oh who's that 
Oh, snap. That's what they call a phone call. Get back to you. All right, so we'll play that chord progression that you brought up at the beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm. What did you call it? Don't Stop Believing Chords? Yeah. <laughs> Journey? Okay, so just get, you know, get us out of that box and color this thing. Okay. Be you. Here um, we go. <laughs> I'll play it in the With or Without You. Okay, here tempo. we go. Here's the diatonic version of that. podcast we have blast thank you guys and uh, we'll see, see you next you, week see you next week ho 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 more questions ho ho ho